Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. Its 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Anyone who has been on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram since Sunday night has seen what many of their friends have posted, Me Too. Actress Alyssa Milano started the campaign last weekend by asking those who have been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed to post Me Too. It was in response to the Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein scandal that is still unfolding. Milano said she started Me Too at the suggestion of a friend to take attention away from perpetrators like Weinstein and allow victims to tell their stories. We're going to talk about what really has been a phenomenon over the past uh, three days with Kristen Hauser, Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Kristen, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I have to tell you, Kristen, that uh, just this week, Monday and Tuesday especially, I was shocked at the number of my friends on Facebook that, when I'm looking through Facebook, that saw hashtag Me Too. Yep. That, I mean, this is something that has really taken off. It's What's taken off is talking about it, but uh, it's a pretty universal experience for women and girls in the United States. And I think that's what surprised me, the, the sheer number. If I were to put a percentage on the number of women friends I had on Facebook mm-hmm. who posted Me Too, it was well over 50%. Yeah, on my personal feeds, it's it's been probably over 90%. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, I guess one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the, the program is to talk about the long-term impact of this. What do you think it will be? Yeah, well... Uh, I think we have to wait and see if people are going to do more than, uh, you know, say, gosh, I'm real sorry to see that that happened to you. Um, I I think we need to really honor people who are talking about it for the first time and um, telling the truth about what their experiences have been in the world and and pay attention and listen to them about what that's been like. Um, But this is just one more reminder. We've had a series of them over the past several years um, uh, of how prevalent sexual violence is in our culture and that we need everybody to be part of the solution. So I think we need to start giving people some uh, concrete things that they can do to start influencing uh, the, the communities that where they live and and the uh, the organizations that they interface with is part of the reason that uh, so many people have uh, posted me too is that there is strength in numbers absolutely I think one of the um, real blessings of social media is that people have been able to connect you know across communities state lines e- even you know um, across the globe these crimes have have the impact of making people feel uh, ashamed and isolated because you're afraid to talk about what happened. Social media has been an opportunity for people to realize that they are not alone, that the way they were feeling after these things happened to them is normal, um, that being afraid to talk about it is normal. And those things help shatter uh, the silence and the stigma uh, around victimization. And so I think as we see more and more people come forward, it's less and less scary for others to do the same. And, you know, there have been many people, women, mostly women, but there have been men who yep. have posted uh, hashtag me too uh, as well, that 
have just posted the Me Too part yep. just to let their friends know that, uh, yes, they have been the victim of uh, sexual violence or, or harassment. Uh, but at the same time, there have been many others who have come out and told a story then. Yep. And some that have said, this is the very first time That's that right. I'm, I'm letting anyone beyond my immediate family or my immediate friends know about this. Right, right. Right. So that strength in numbers, I, I mean, do you see that now, be, even before this, do you see that at PCAR that once someone starts telling the story that it helps them to tell more people and to try to reach out to seek help? We we do see that. And we, we have seen that with numerous other high profile cases, whether they've been you know regional here or national uh you know, news making events. But whenever people are emboldened to tell a personal story, they often may not know who the person is that they're impacting, but there are other people out there who uh, connect with that and realize that, you know, that this might be a moment in time where it is safe to uh, unload that secret. So there there definitely is, um, for some people, uh, there there is a, a beneficial side to to this outcry. It's giving people permission to talk and get rid of that secret. But we have to keep in mind that there are other people who do not live in uh, households or communities or environments where it is safe for them to talk. And having your, um, you know, we, we use social media for entertainment a lot. So when you get on to, uh, you know, look at cat pictures or, you know, whatever you, you're trying to do to relax and you're bombarded with numerous people disclosing uh, histories of sexual assault and sexual harassment, uh, that can also be very um, overwhelming. So we, we do want people to know if, if they need a, a safe place to talk about it or to explore what options are to get help for their own stories. Even if they don't want to talk publicly, they don't have to. But you can talk to counselors at rape crisis centers across Pennsylvania to get support if you need it. Have you seen more people coming forward uh, this week, the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape? And I'm not, when I say coming forward, not online, but maybe contacting rape crisis centers or your organization saying that uh, this is kind of what motivated me to talk about it that, more. That's a great question. I We don't have instant you know, data about hotline use or, or calls to our center, so I, I really can't answer that. It's it's not a, a real-time kind of a statistic that we're able to keep track of, but it has definitely led to a lot of conversation among our, our followers on social media, both at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape and the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. We've got a lot of conversation and, and even debate with some people saying, you know, this is ridiculous. We should not have to bear our pain to make people realize that this is real. We've been telling you for centuries that this is real. And the problem is that people don't believe us. Like we we don't believe individuals when they come forward with their individual story. It shouldn't take having, you know, millions of women uh, volunteer the horrible things that have been done to them for us to wake up and pay attention. So I, I think it's it's sparking uh, outrage in people. It's sparking awareness. It's sparking questions about what can we do to to change our culture. So there there are good uh, seeds being planted from mm-hmm. all of this. Our guest during this portion of the program is Kristen Hauser with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. We're talking about the Me Too campaign. Has the Me Too campaign had any effect on you this week? I mean, a story that uh, maybe you didn't think you want to uh, you wanted to tell or haven't told uh, publicly in uh, in in the past that uh, you have on social media this week or have participated, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. You know, Kristen, and almost every time that you or someone when we're talking about sexual violence is on our program i almost always get questions and i've heard this other places as well 
about the figures mm-hmm. that uh, one in three women, I think most of the time it's uh, on college campus, we've seen the college campuses, one in three women or one in four women. What is the figure? It's, it's, it's between one in four and one in five on college campuses. Okay, yeah. that have the, been the victim of uh, sexual assault. So, you know, we always have people questioning that, saying, no, that, that can't be. That's that's too many. Yeah. 20% of the population that yeah. has been a victim. So that's why when something like this happens and you have so many people coming out and saying, me too, maybe those people who question those statistics will say, huh, maybe there's something to this. Let's hope so, because we have over two decades worth of research conducted by Uh, federal government entities, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, um, uh, NIJ, uh, Department of Justice, that consistently find uh, very similar rates of incidents of sexual violence. So the numbers have, uh, have, they they may differ slightly study to study, but the the overall picture is, uh, has been consistently measured now for, you know, two, three decades. Um, and, and the reality is this is a crime that people don't talk about with the Me Too campaign, expanding it to talk about, you know, sexual harassment uh, and, and what that's like in your daily life. Um, I you know, what we're really seeing is that it, it's much closer, you know, to to like 100 percent of women, um, you know, ha- who have experienced things like that. Um, there, there was a study that just came out yesterday talking about most, or I forget what the exact percentage was, but it was more than 50% of girls experiencing street harassment uh, by the age of 12. So, you know, this, this is a cultural problem that, uh, it, frankly, it's easy to fix. Uh, you know, number one, don't do it. And number two, if, you're, if your friends are doing it, let them know that's not acceptable. There, there's also strength in numbers when it comes to enforcing standards of respect and kindness and safety. And that's where we need the voices now. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the real challenges that uh, uh, we faced as a society, and, and I hate to even use the word challenge for those who have been victims, because that seems to, uh, I don't know, uh, underestimate what, what they've gone through. But is that many, many times, and you know this, and your statistics show this, that these crimes go unreported. Yes. Do you mm-hmm. think something like the Me Too campaign will lead to more people actually reporting when they are a victim? Well, we have seen over the past 25 years that rates of reporting to law enforcement have slowly increased. So there, there is a trend that more people are going to the police. But I, I think we need to expand our options for solutions beyond law enforcement. Uh, that If that was going to be the only answer that fixes it, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. Um, so we, we need to recognize that there are so many different environmental uh, factors that victims weigh about whether or not it's safe to go to the police. You know, m- maybe there's a uh, issues with the police in any particular community uh, that that they're not trustworthy, that they haven't been handling cases properly. You know, we see we see rape uh, kit backlog across the nation. We see studies where they're finding bias in policing in different communities. So, those things do exist. Or it could be that that your community doesn't trust the police or work with them. So you're you're caught between a bind of wanting to report what's happened to you and yet uh, going against the community that you need support from. Um, it's disruptive. The court system is not a foolproof guarantee. It's a long process. Uh, If you're working an hourly wage job, then you're you're talking about missing work to talk about the most awful thing that's happened to you. People don't want to do that. It it brings up needs for child care. It can cause problems in the home. It's a very disruptive uh, crime in the way that it impacts people's ability to live in the world. So when you report to an authority, oftentimes having control over how you handle that is something that you lose. And and that creates more chaos. It might be short term, but it creates more chaos. And what victims are often looking for is they just want to get back to their life the way it was before the assault, which they may find a year or two later is an impossible thing to, to, uh, to do. But if you want to get back to life the way it was before the assault, reporting to the police and suddenly being at the whim of, of all the different appointments and interviews and things that go with that justice system, um, that, that's, that's not going to be the way your life was before the assault. Let's take a phone call from Terry in Lancaster. Terry, you're on the air. Hi, it's actually Keely. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, thanks for thanks for talking about this today. So what's on your mind? So um, I was listening in, and um, I also shared um, a violent uh, story that happened to me this week um, with the Me Too campaign kind of um, empowered me to talk about it for the first time um, on social media. Um, I'm the editor of Susquehanna Style Magazine, um, so I believe I have a, um, a far-reaching impact on local women um, in the area and with um, my voice, and I felt like this was the time to speak up and say something. Um, and what happened was I heard back from several women uh, privately, not some publicly, but but mostly privately, um, and who began sharing their stories too for the first time. Right. But I echo the sentiment that you that you just spoke about in that um, someone very close to me who was violently gang raped um, did not go to the police; just wanted to get back to her life. Um, I was um, held at gunpoint and choked until I passed out, and I think that the the person doing this was so afraid that I was dead that he stopped what he was doing, um, but held me at gunpoint and told me that he would kill me if I went to the police. So, you know, that fear is, right. is very prevalent. And, right. and so, and then what we're seeing right now is not only have we been afraid to talk about it, but then when you do talk about it, um, people, people are still a little, um, condescending in in the me too hashtag like well what is this even going to do right what's the point and so even though we finally are feeling a little bit more empowered i I think it's important especially for women to back each other up and not cut each other down over you know you shouldn't be doing this on facebook or you know this isn't what this is for it is just for looking at pictures of cats and (laughs) You know, um, well, for, so. first of all, sorry that uh, you went through that, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, glad that you called in and, and shared your story. Thank you very much. And and you know, those are the kind of stories that, uh, as, as she said, yeah, you know that what this campaign has done is. Uh, I, I don't want to use the word allowed, but that's no, what yes, it's, it's done. Yeah, it's allowed many people to to come out. But that's that's just a horrible story that she told. Right. And and what's even more horrible is what a common story that that is. Uh, you know, she she made so many good points there in her call about um, disclosures make people uncomfortable. We don't want to believe that people. We know, number one, are victimized like this, but even more so that people we know might be perpetrating crimes like this. We, we really have this idea that it's an all or nothing game, and, and it's not. People who look and appear nice in public or do other good things for the community still may be doing horrible things in private. And there are our societal uh, desire to, to fully demonize perpetrators is another layer of things that keep victims silent. If it's a family member, somebody you've had an intimate relationship with, somebody who's been a friend for years, it's a very confusing thing to feel like this person I, I like, trust, and admire was capable of doing this. And if you know that going public, uh, the expectation is that they, they're, a, they're now a monster, and that's not how you feel because you're still confused over it. Um, people don't don't want to put that out there. They don't want to put their lives under the microscope. You know, we consistently ask victims about their actions and their behaviors, and those are all of the wrong questions um, because these these are not crimes that victims are responsible for. The, these are um, deliberate crimes that are carried out in private, strategically by the offender, so that they don't get caught. Um, and, and we have to keep that in mind. It's we should be asking questions about what are the things that offenders do to build trust, gain access, and be allowed to be in private with a person so that they can carry out this crime. And that that is why it's so important that we 
address things that are uh, not over the criminal line, but things like street harassment, verbal harassment, et cetera. Stop it early. Change the environment. Yeah, we really haven't had time to talk about harassment or Harvey Weinstein himself and uh, what the issues that he brings up. Because uh, Kristen has uh, has been uh, has a big honor today, so you have to make your way to the Capitol now from Smart Talk. I appreciate you very much on this big day. You were being sworn in, uh, Pennsylvania Commission on Women, right? That's right. Yeah, thank so, you. Well, uh, congratulations. And uh, as you know, I'll have you back many times, but there are so many issues to discuss. There are so many issues. So anytime. Thank you. Kristen Hauser with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Thank you very much for being with us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at Capital bluecross.com capital blue cross live fearless smart talk is also supported by upmc pinnacle committed to reducing hospital acquired infections and readmission rates more information on upmc pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality In 1736, Benjamin Franklin started the nation's first volunteer fire company. At its height in the mid-70s, volunteer fire companies in Pennsylvania had more than 300,000 members. Today, that number is closer to 50,000. Today, we'll discuss the declining numbers of volunteer firefighters in the region and what that means in in terms of public safety. But first, we're going to start off by uh, talking with uh, Tim Salabay, who is Pennsylvania's uh, fire commissioner, and uh, see what he had to say about some of the reasons that uh, Pennsylvania has a shrinking number of volunteer firefighters. Commissioner Salovey, thank you very much for being with us today. Glad to be there. Thank you for uh, taking the interest. 300,000 volunteer firefighters in Pennsylvania in the 1970s. Today, there are about 50,000. What happened? Well, it's a combination of things. And, uh, you know, whenever I get a chance to go out around the Commonwealth and talk to folks, you know, we hear that that story. Uh, that's one of the big things we hear. But, you know, the thing I think that kind of premises a lot of this is uh, the fact the lack of funding. Uh, we have a hard time. Uh, people join a fire department to give back to their community in times of emergency or when things aren't uh, just perfect and, and right. And they find out once they get in that uh, not only got to worry about training and learn how to do that job, but they're going to spend 90% of their time fundraising to do this job that they want to volunteer and do for free. Uh, that coupled with, uh, you know, our, our lives are so much busier, people no longer live where they work, uh, which has a lot of travel time in place. Let's face it, it's a dangerous occupation. And, and I say occupation uh, because uh, whether you're career or volunteer, uh, that fire, that emergency doesn't know the difference between the two of them. So you've got to prepare, train, educate yourself to be able to handle whatever the situation is. And that takes time as well. And, and uh, you know, when folks realize that, uh, hey, this is something I could be doing that could injure me or or possibly kill me, Uh, they uh, start scratching their head and think, you know, maybe I better go volunteer and do something else other than the uh, the fire service. Uh, One of the other things we're finding out that's kind of a, a unique thing is that family size has changed over the years. So you don't have the large families that uh, you used to have to draw from. Pennsylvania has become a much more aged uh, uh, state population-wise. And uh, uh, so now the uh, those folks that were doing it back in the 70s, like myself, had got 41, 42 years into this game, uh, you're not seeing the younger folks want to look at it. And I don't – I don't um, – I don't, I don't uh, uh, you know, feel that they're not doing it because they don't want to. It's just, again, because of activities, busyness, things that are going on in their lives, uh, it takes away from that opportunity to volunteer. Getting back to the money part of it, yes, sir. Uh, it probably wouldn't surprise many Pennsylvanians that much of a volunteer firefighter's time is spent fundraising. But at the same time, there are people, when they hear this conversation, say, well, you know, they're volunteers. I I wouldn't think that money would be a problem. What specifically is underfunded that is keeping people from becoming volunteers? 
Well, when you think about, you know, again, going back to uh, 40 years ago when uh, you look at the cost of things, and I realize prices on everything have gone up. I mean, from wages to uh, goods and, and services and the type, but, uh, you know, a fire engine cost about $75,000 40 years ago. Now that same fire engine could cost as much as $750,000, yet the fundraising monies that you do, the the, uh, chicken barbecues, bingos, gun bashes, uh, uh, whatever kind of solicitation, hoagie sales the case may be, the dollar that you raise by doing that activity has not raised itself up exponentially the same way the cost of equipment has. So, uh, you know, and again, most people think that the local governments cover all those costs, and in most cases they do not uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, they just kind of, the, the volunteer fire service, you know, kind of prided itself for many, many years on kind of being self-sufficient. Well, now it's become to the point because of cost of equipment. I mean, that that's the truck equipment. You know, you put uh, you you put someone in gear, uh, an air pack to protect them when they're inside of a building. Uh, you're almost talking ten thousand dollars per person to to boots, pants, helmet, jacket, air pack. Uh, you know, the whole works to outfit an individual. And depending on the activity of that particular fire department, uh, you know, the manufacturers basically tell us that stuff will last anywhere. Gear, about 10 years. Uh, air packs, you might be able to get 15 years out of it based on the way you use it. But if you're a very active department with a lot of uh, uh, activity that can uh, injure that, that equipment, uh, it may not last that long. And, and, you know, you've got 20, 30, whatever numbers of, of folks in your department, and you're changing that out. That alone is also very costly, let alone hose, nozzles, all the other ancillary equipment that we utilize. Uh, so, you know, it's become costly from that aspect of it, and it's just, you know, tough to get the, the fundraising dollar, especially when a lot of people think, uh, in most cases, that volunteers, that's a paid department anyways, whenever we know that 90% of them across the Commonwealth are strictly volunteer or maybe a combination-type uh, uh, department. Just so uh, we're, we're clear on this, though, uh, why does the lack of money or the equipment not being changed out as frequently as really needed, how does that keep people from volunteering? Well, because they're, they're, uh, they're saddled with the, the responsibility of raising that money if it's not coming from local government. Uh, so, therefore, they're spending that time raising the money. They're not able to maybe train the way they want, do all the other activities that their family requires them to do. And because of the the, uh, the increased amount of cost for that equipment, uh, you're, you're having to, to raise, you know, 10 times the amount of money that you may have used to have to spend, uh, you know, in previous years. So that so- time of spending all that and, and the, to raise the money, I mean, it's very difficult to uh, uh, by doing it a couple bucks at a time with a chicken barbecue, yeah. it just doesn't get to, to the level that you need. It, it really is kind of amazing that uh, the number of fire companies we have across the state raise the kind of money that they can or that they do through uh, what you described, chicken barbecues, bingo, things like that, uh, small games of chance sometimes. Right. But what can be done? I mean, what's the answer to the funding issue? Well, the the biggest answer that I've I've tried to push to the local governments and and both the statewide organizations of boroughs and townships are really starting to understand this, uh, mainly from a from a fiscal side of it. You know, if, if a department is coming to you and asking, you know, hey, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year could really help us get through what we need to do, maybe $200,000, that's a hell of a lot better than if they get stuck having to turn around and put a full career department on that now goes to 2 or $3 million a year uh, for, that same, for that same service. So it's kind of the old advantage, you know, pay us now or pay us a heck of a lot later uh, if we have to go to a career department. Now, nothing against career departments because there's a lot of need for those depending on the, on the, the situation. But with you have so many volunteer departments and so many people willing to volunteer if they didn't have that that uh, that big cloud over the head of the fundraising aspect of it uh <clears throat> you would save local taxpayers lots of money i mean it's it's estimated right now if everything in pennsylvania went full career it would be a minimum of almost up to 10 
billion of additional local taxes would be necessary to raise across the entire Commonwealth. That's one-third of the state budget right now. If you had to add that into local governments, uh, you know, the, the, now granted, uh, some communities it may not be as heavy of a burden as others, but if you look at it in the whole, about $10 billion is saved annually to local taxpayers with uh, the advent of local volunteers. So, you know, increasing the amount that uh, municipalities are giving their volunteers to operate is a big thing, whether they utilize the fire tax, which is a statewide initiative that was uh, passed years ago that allows for uh, a special fire tax, and that money's designated straight for their local fire department. Uh, you're seeing also, too, a lot of other areas where maybe uh, uh, multiple fire departments within the same district or same area are finding that they could even merge or finding it necessary to merge, not only for the manpower portion of things, but to minimize the overall cost. Uh, you know, communities of 10,000 don't necessarily need four, five, six fire departments within it whenever they can operate under one fire department with maybe half of the equipment. Now, that's a very difficult conversation sometimes to have with fire departments uh, because of, of uh, uh, their own little entities, but they are starting to realize that uh, things from the past can no longer be the way they need to operate if they want to, you know, stay, stay sound financially and still be able to provide the service. Other than several cities in the state, Pennsylvania is a pretty rural state, and That's I would correct. imagine that uh, the, the the crisis, as far as volunteer firefighters go, uh, is more of a crisis in uh, rural areas. Is there the potential out there for someone to call nine one one and no one show up? That's the thing that haunts me just about every day. That I'm going to get a phone call from some area or from some region that says, "Hey, we had a call." Nobody showed up. Somebody died, a major uh, 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 property loss because of something like that, uh, or a delayed response because now we had to kick out to the next station that was maybe 8 or 10 miles away, and you get that in rural Pennsylvania. I mean, even now, uh, I've talked to some chiefs that have a response area where it could be 20 minutes that they have to go, if even first sitting in the station, to get to the other ends of their district because of the size of their communities or the, the, the rural area that they have. It could be 20, 25 minutes. And now knowing with uh, the furnishings in homes can basically have a flashover situation within the home where the entire place can be engulfed, could happen as quickly as three or four minutes. Uh, by 20 minutes, uh, you're going to be nothing but a foundation. So, you know, it, it is a, a scary proposal and, again, something that uh, I, I do fear uh, and, and something that could, could keep you up thinking about that. Has it happened yet? Uh, I am sure that there are occasions that have occurred that I, that I just haven't gotten, you know, the direct contact from a, from a chief where a delayed response or a fact that they've had to kick out to another company because there hasn't been response. Uh, fortunately, I haven't heard of a death that have occurred because of that. I'm sure there's been uh, maybe uh, um, excess property damages occurred because it took a delayed response to get there. But I know of no direct incident yet in Pennsylvania where someone has died or a major injury to that individual because of a delayed response because the fire department did not respond. But uh, definitely there have been delays and uh, where they've had to tone out, you know, other responding companies because they did not get that call from the primary responding company. Mm. Pennsylvania Fire Commissioner Tim Salabay, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. We now turn to Don Conkle, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Emergency Services Institute, and Dwayne Hagelgans, an assistant professor at Millersville University Center for Disaster Research and Education, longtime volunteer firefighter himself. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us, Scott. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. I have to tell you that uh, after listening to that uh, and from what I've read about the situation of volunteer firefighters across the state, we have a grave situation, don't we, Don? We do. And one of our concerns is looking into the future is one of the main ways people have recruited volunteer firefighters have been through families. It's been a tradition. And as we lose a generation of firefighters, which we are because a lot of millennials are now not volunteering as firefighters, 
um, there won't be a tradition left to continue to do that. So we think an incentive program um, to incentivize people to volunteer um, is probably critical going forward in the future. Okay, you talked about tradition, but why did people in the past volunteer? Well, one, and the commissioner alluded to some of that, is that people seemed to have more time. They had larger families. Um, you had one-income families in a lot of a lot of places, people working a 40-hour week. Um, with the economy in the last 10 or 15 years, you now have a lot more two-income families, so it's harder to spend the time at the firehouse. Or you're working multiple jobs, which, once again, just doesn't give you enough time um, to volunteer. So, Dwayne Hagelgans, you work with a lot of young people at uh, Millersville University. Um, now, I imagine that a lot of people in, in your classes are there because they want to be. And this is something that maybe they're looking at emergency services, firefighting as a career. But what do they say about volunteering? Well, we, uh, we've we seen a drop in the volunteerism also, especially with the college students. We used to have a lot of college students that did it, but as uh, Don talked about, you know, the time commitment is, is very challenging. Uh, then you do fundraising. We're now having some issues with workers' comp in the fundraising. That's causing uh, some other problems, but it's a, it's a social aspect, too. I think that, that when you saw the families and, and the social aspect of the community where everybody came together at the volunteer firehouse, people don't do that anymore. Uh, social media certainly has taken away some of that social aspect of the, the community firehouse. So volunteerism is definitely uh, a dying art here. Common, you said about workers' comp. What, what's the issue there? Well, recently we've discovered that um, the state workers' insurance fund is not uh, covering people that are doing fundraising as volunteers in the fire service. So that has uh, also put a situation in, in our community. We're saying, well, we're, we're a little concerned about having people go out and do fundraising if we're not going to cover them if something were to happen to them and they were to get injured. So it's it's a battle we're fighting right now. Mm -hmm. uh, Don, I'm going to ask you the same question that I, I did uh, Tim Salabay. Um the potential for danger. Is there the potential that safety is being jeopardized across the state? Yeah, I, we think safety is being jeopardized every day. And, and several, beyond just the fire itself, um, more and more companies, and I would say now almost the majority of the companies, where 10 or 15 years ago you got a single company to respond, three or four pieces of apparatus to structure fire, because of limited manpower, now you get four companies to respond. So you have 16 pieces of fire apparatus on the street responding to the very same emergency. Obviously, just the danger of having an accident has increased. Plus, fires are different than they used to be. They're about 10 times as fast to flash over because of all the synthetics in our home. Very few things are wooden fiber anymore. They're almost all petroleum-based. So fires burn faster and hotter, and we're taking longer to get there. So the importance of people having a good emergency plan or preferably a residential sprinkler system, um, we, I think in the, in the future we need to really question the model of whether the current fire service even is a good business model. Fires are so fast, we aren't going to be able to get there in time. But we're the stopgap in the meantime until we'll be – a hundred years before sprinklers solve the the entire problem. Mm -hmm. uh, Dwayne, something that uh, Tim mentioned there about training. Training seems to be a, a big issue. I mean, from what I understand, it could take up to a year of training for a volunteer firefighter, and that there are a lot of people who lose interest. I mean, they the reason they want to volunteer is you know, they want to help their communities. They want to fight fires, and. Having to wait a year in that training and do it week after week after week, a lot of people drop out because of that. What can we do? I mean, with today's technology, there would seem to be a better way to do it. Well, as we do down at the university, we do a lot of online uh, education and training, and Don and I were talking about this earlier. You know, there's a lot of theory that goes into the fire service, and there's a lot of capability now um, with with the way to do things with technology where we could train people so that they don't have to spend so much time driving to the local training facility. You know, it's really a time issue, so the more we can do online training, hey, they still need to come throw a ladder, they still need to come pull a hose, but let's get all that other training done in the firehouse where they're not spending so much time driving back and forth to the training center. There's just so many things that we can do now. We have volunteers that come in, and the minute they find out how, how many hours they have to, to spend to do training to become a firefighter, it really is turning people off. So so we need to really cut down that, that time aspect.
aspect, and we can do that through the online training model. Don, you've been in this for some time, 35 years, did I read? More like 45. 45. Okay, I was off by a decade. <laughs> I hate to remind you of that, but <laughs> but 45 years in fire services, other than the fires themselves have changed and that we don't have enough volunteers out there, what else has changed over the years? Well, interesting little things like call volume. When I first started as a volunteer firefighter, every volunteer in the world was looking for more calls. But with the advent of automatic fire alarms... Um, now, many volunteer firefighters or companies are running six to, 600 to 1,000 calls a year. That becomes a detriment because you just can't keep up that level of response. Um, and then dispatching multiple companies on the same call because of manpower issues is all self-defeating. So I think, you know, those issues have all come to come to change. And, and as we look at millennials, and you talk to millennials or people who are researching them, they want to volunteer, but they want to do a project and get out. And the volunteer fire service doesn't lend itself very well to a 40-hour volunteer over four months and completing a project and moving on to the next thing. Project meaning volunteer project. A volunteer project. Right. Um, there, there's not many of those types of things that are attractive. Um, so while you may have a lot of millennials looking to do something, it, it just they don't want to make a 10-year commitment um, to their volunteer or a, a two-year commitment to get all their certifications. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about the shortage of volunteer firefighters in Pennsylvania. Money is going to come up uh, in the conversation here very, very soon. If you have a question or a comment, maybe a suggestion on what we could do to uh, get more volunteer firefighters across the state, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Let's go to the phone. Susan is in New Cumberland. Susan, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I am so glad that you are talking about this because I have been complaining about this for years. Ask my family because they're sick of hearing about it. <laughs> the fact that not only do volunteer firefighters have to come to my house and save me from a fire or an accident, but they have to have chicken dinners for the privilege of doing that. And that just seems, like, outrageous to me. And so I, I feel your pain there. And it almost seems as though communities have de developed a sense of entitlement to these services. And if each family could write a check to their local fire company in the, in the community, how much would that check have to be in order to cover these types of services. And I wonder if people would be willing to do that if they actually knew that. Mm. Thank you for your time. Hey, thank you very much for your call. She brings up some good points, but one that uh, I wanted to ask about, and we will talk about the amount of that check, but uh, uh, do communities take this for granted? Well, I, I think over the years, the Volunteer Fire Service has done a good job. A lot of communities has been become accustomed to the fact that it's free. And it simply can't be free any longer. There's a cost to the fire service even the volunteer fire service. And recognizing that, and, and we think taxes are a better way to go than asking people to write a check. I think uh, the last number I saw, only about 20% of the people when you do a volunteer fundraiser and ask them to contribute actually send you money. So 80% um, are writing off of those 20, which is unfair. If you do a reasonable tax um, that would generate 100 to $200,000 a year, depending on the size of the community, it could get that fundraising aspect out of the community and prevent that transition to career fire services. All right, what's, a, what's a reasonable tax? Because that's the question. Well, we think it varies on, from community to community. But, you know, we're talking probably a mill or less in most communities um, is, is the common fire tax as we look across the state. And that is a, at least an excellent starting point. And it depends, obviously, a mill in every community is different, but so is the size of the fire department. So I think if you're looking for sort of a, a straw number, it's somewhere around a mill. Okay. So, and I'll ask the same question that I asked Tim Salabay. What does money have to do with it other than equipment and that kind of thing? Why do you need, why do you need the cash? Well, it's, it's insurance. It, it, you know, it's fuel for the vehicles as well as the equipment. And, and the evil in the money is the time it takes to fundraise to do that. 
is that people volunteer in the community, 90% of them, because they want to help their community in, in a time of an emergency. And they don't want to spend three hours or four hours every Thursday night at bingo or seven Saturdays a year doing chicken barbecues. So let's talk about some of the the other things. There have been communities across the state that uh, have added a fire tax, even some of the, the smallest townships in the state. Dwayne, go ahead. You wanted to say something yeah, about we're, that? Yeah, uh, we're partially uh, funded by a fire tax. So Manor Township has a fire in tax. In Lancaster County. In Lancaster County. And we're at, uh, I think it's point four two mills, So which brings in a lot of money. We still, our volunteers still want to do some fundraising because that is part of the social aspect, but it really helps a lot. I mean, over 10% of our budget is insurance cost. I mean, we used to pay 12000 for workers' comp. We're paying 60000 for workers' comp. We have liability insurance, errors and emission insurance. You know, if, if volunteers are out there spending all their time raising money, you know, when they walk in the door and you go, oh, by the way, we'll let you fight fire in a year, but starting tomorrow, we're going to have you fundraising, they don't stick around very long. Mm. Now talk about some incentives that have been suggested to get more volunteers involved. I mean, it's obvious from what you're saying that uh, there are fire companies, that uh, fire services that do need funding. But some of the incentives that have been suggested for getting uh, more people to, to volunteer, tax credits, property tax relief for volunteers, uh, adding support positions, those that uh, may not actually fight the fire but are helping out a- along the way. Associate firefighters where other people, employees in the township, that uh, they could somehow, uh, if needed, become a volunteer as well. Uh, Paper call. This is something that uh, a lot of people would say, well, they're no longer volunteers. But at the same time, reality is that uh, if maybe there's some some money involved per call, that uh, there's a little more incentive. A gas stipend. This is something that I have to admit that a lot of people probably don't know, but you probably have volunteers in some of the more rural communities in this state that are driving miles to get to the firehouse to get all their equipment, get on the fire truck, go to the fire, come back, and then drive home and doing it on their own dime as far as uh, paying for gas. Uh, and we'll talk about some other things as well. But what about those suggestions? Well, we think we think they're all good suggestions. And what we're encouraging the legislature to do in fact, um, tax breaks in, for income tax and, and earned income tax and property taxes are now authorized. And there's been about 60, just it's a year old, the law, about 60 municipalities have already stepped up to do that. And we think that's an encouraging sign. But we believe in authorizing a, a whole toolbox full of incentives that a volunteer fire company that um, in the Harrisburg region, probably not a whole lot of volunteers are interested in, in mileage. Um, you know, geez, thanks for the quarter for driving to the station. Right, right, right. But you're, if you're driving to go to a meeting, if you're driving to go to training, you're driving to go to a fundraiser, and fire calls two or three times a week, and you're driving 15 miles back and forth, that's an attractive thing. So I don't think in a state the size of Pennsylvania we can say this is the one solution. But we can put 15 tools in that toolbox and say to the volunteer company, sit down and with your members and your elected officials and choose what you think will have the best effect. Mm-hmm. And, Dwayne, I want to address this with you, bring these suggestions up, because you do uh, work at Millersville University. Some other uh, suggestions have been uh, school district, community college partnerships, housing for college students, meaning that they actually would sleep at the at the fire station, college loan repayment tuition assistance. Um, what about those things for uh, some young people getting involved? I mean, all those things are very beneficial. We actually have a live-in program now, a, a couple fire companies in Lancaster County have the live-in program where you can come and stay. Uh, half the cost of college is is the uh, room and board. So by having that benefit to them, also having that, that, that relief of the tuition. You know, if you go out and volunteer, if you do it as a public school teacher, you know, you get that relief from your tuition bills. So maybe we could do the same for the volunteer fire service. Uh, anything we can do to help out financially and to help out with the time commitment. It's really, you, you request so much time out of these volunteers. And so if we can cut that time down in any way, shape, or form, I think that that'll be beneficial. But as Donnie said, we, we've lost a whole uh, generation here. You know, people, um, 
just aren't coming. The the average volunteer, we did a study, is, is over 35 years old right now. Uh, what's going to happen in five years or 10 years if, if all of a sudden they're all 45, 55 years old? Uh, where's the volunteer fire service going to be? Mergers and consolidation. I mean, this is a controversial issue in a lot of uh, different communities because, let's face it, that tradition you talked about, Don, um, you know, some communities, even small communities, are used to having three uh, fire companies, three firehouses. Uh, a lot of consolidations, mergers have happened over the years. Will there be, there be more? We think there will be. And, and interestingly enough, and, and when you talk to people who have merged or formed cooperative partnerships, sort of the benefit that they don't view when they go into it is I think everybody's had the experience of sitting in a room in a volunteer organization, and it's time to elect the secretary. Um, everybody's looking at the floor praying they don't get nominated. Um, and, and so if you merge or, or you have a cooperative partnership between three volunteer fire companies, you only need one secretary, you only need one treasurer. So those support the, those support positions are spread more equally or among greater number of people. And they're the type of things that sometimes people leave a volunteer fire company for because they don't want to be the secretary, but nobody else is willing to step up. So I'm just going to walk away. So not only do you get more emergency responders, but you get more of that support staff um, that is critical to the operation. But And there, here's one of the buts that you hear from time to time when mergers or consolidations are, uh, are, are suggested, is that there will be certain areas that the, the fire company, if there's one compared to two, will not be able to get to as as quickly, or maybe they have to cross railroad tracks, or, you know, that they're, this is one of well, the objections that you hear. And sometimes, particularly in a cooperative partnership, we aren't talking about closing firehouses, we're talking about just merging functions. So you only need one training officer, or if you have two, I'm preparing ground ladders this week, and Dwayne's preparing breathing apparatus next week. I'm not the sole training officer that's responsible for doing everything. So we aren't closing a firehouse, but we're combining a lot of those operations that make it less burdensome for the volunteer fire company. Mm. Uh, we only have a minute or so left. I want to thank uh, the two of you for being with us today. So have we reached the crisis stage with this yet, and what's the answer? Well, we believe clearly we're, we're in the crisis stage, and it's, it's getting worse. Um, and, and we believe that um, looking at incentives, and the legislature has authorized a new study um, Fifteen years ago, we had SR60 that looked at some solutions, and a lot of those have been implemented. SR6 will give us a chance to state with, at the state level. Uh -huh. um, it's a House and Senate commission with a lot of firefighters on it that will hopefully come up with some more creative ideas that we can uh, get out of this problem or at least mm -hmm. stop it. Dom, or, or Dwayne, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. We're in crisis state. I mean, we, we really need the legislators to stand up and start supporting the volunteer fire service. Um, if not, that, that number you heard earlier, the, the $10 billion number, is going to happen sooner rather than later. Mm. I want to thank both of you for being with us today. Don Conkle is Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Emergency Services Institute. Wayne Hagelgans is an Assistant Professor at Millersville University Center for Disaster Research and Education. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, I know it's about uh, uh, almost a year after the 2016 presidential election, but there has been some comprehensive data and research on Pennsylvania and why Pennsylvania voted Republican last year when it came to uh, Donald Trump and also Senator Pat Toomey. And uh, Burwood Yost from Franklin Marshall College uh, uh, will be with us in you know, the polling organization to talk about uh, what that research has found and whether Pennsylvania is actually changing politically. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists from Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. 